that was either closely connected to that period of time frame uh, or would know something about it and interview them. And I had the opportunity of talking with my grandfather and interviewing him about the Depression era and a lot of his actions and things that he would do were directly connected and associated with that and uh, found out a lot about his character and what he did was directly related to that time frame. You did not throw stuff away because you might need it again and you made it work and so the stuff might, may have piled up. Later, uh, here in Bakersfield, I had a neighbor and her name was Mrs. Poston. She owned a furniture store on 34th Street and her house had a lot of stuff, <laughs> a lot of junk. It took them a long time to get all the stuff uh, out of her place. But she also was somebody that can remember that area. You didn't throw stuff away because you might need it. And you cobbled things together and, and you, you worked. You ran it to the ground uh, because <clears throat> times were so difficult. And so you made everything count. You didn't throw anything away. You made everything count. And so this title is referring to that that state of financial affairs, but what would be the new Great Depression? What would become the new Great Depression in our era? This is an article that I read, and so I'm going to read it and use it as our launching pad. It has to do with young people, but I'm for sure that it's not just relegated to the youth in our country and in our world, but it also impacts just about all of us. And there's three particular statements that young people identify with more than they have in the recent past. So I want to read the article, and I want to use the three statements as a discussion on how we would respond to that from a biblical perspective. The article states that the number of teens who don't enjoy life has doubled with the advent of social media. And so I'm going to read a lot of this article to you, and you'll understand um, what the new Great Depression is. That's how they start the article. It's the new Great Depression. Since the rise of social media, depression and feelings of hopelessness have skyrocketed among teens. Now, they're saying teens because this specific study was with teenagers. But I think you could extrapolate that and say there's a certain level of depression and feelings of hopelessness in our world as a general statement and comment. Thank God that we have a hope that maketh not a shame, and we can come to the house of God and feel a strength that other people may not feel. And so I want to be somebody that can testify about that. Nearly half of teens say they agree, they agree with phrases like, and here are the three phrases, I can't do anything right, I do not enjoy life, and my life is not useful. Roughly, twice as many as did just a decade ago. So basing their results in these statistics, they have tracked this since 1992, somewhere around 1992, and those numbers have pretty much held steady until about 2010. And about the time of 2010, they start to go up in staggering numbers. This particular psychologist by the name of Dr. Gene Twinge said these are staggering numbers, <clears throat> just enormous increases and parents are rightfully very concerned about their children's mental health. This poll was conducted by the University of Michigan, and it is featured in a book that's entitled Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. It is just the latest startling revelation about youth mental health as rates of teen anxiety and teen depression have grown. And the number one cause 
according to this psychologist in this book, is social media and screen time. This is the culprit. In fact, rates of teen depressive symptoms have increased massively since the mass popularization of the smartphone in the early 2010s. So they claim there is no question that this is the primary cause of the increase in teen depression now. This psychologist stated, it's by far the largest change in teens' everyday lives over the past 10 to 12 years and nothing else even comes close. Amazing, the University of Michigan poll has been conducted annually since 1991 with 50,000 students in eighth, 10th, and 12th grades nationwide and they are asked if they agree with the statements. I can't do anything right, I do not enjoy life, and my life is not useful. While the numbers held steady until about 2012, they began a sharp ascent the next year, and then fewer than 20% of students said they agree, until then, until then, 2012, fewer than 20% of students said they agree with the phrase, I do not enjoy my life, now that number is a staggering 50%. So it skyrocketed around 2012. This coincides with the rise of platforms like Instagram, Snapchat, and there's a host of others, TikTok, what have you. 2015, TikTok became popular in the US two years later after some of these other platforms. And today, again, this is talking about teens, but it's not just teens. All right, this article is based on teens, but it is everybody. Uh, and this article said that teens nowadays can spend up to nine hours a day glued to screens, and half of them say they are online almost constantly. Screen time is replacing critical rites of passage. Since smartphones came onto the scene, the share of teens dating, getting a driver's license, and working for pay has plummeted. And it is a fundamental change in how teens spend their leisure time. If you put all this together, more time with screens, less time with friends, face-to-face, -face, less time sleeping, that is a very poor recipe for mental health. There is a good, good reason to get your family to the house of God on a Tuesday night so that we can have face-to-face -face interaction with people. We can worship the Lord together. We can go in the cafe and fellowship and have some real meaningful experiences. Somebody ask you, why do you people go to church so much? Tell them it's better than spending nine hours on a screen not interacting with anybody, so we go to get our socialization. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. <laughs> You got an answer now, that coworker that said, you folks are crazy. You go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Tuesday night. You come for prayer on Monday, choirs on Wednesday. Youth are doing something on Friday. Children are having Bible studies. What in the world are you doing? We're trying to keep our minds right. We value mental health. And the way things are going, people are not healthy mentally. Praise God. Well, man, that's just an article, but that'll preach. Amen. That is amazing. You know, one of the things that we talked about, we've always been as a movement, an apostolic movement, in the 50s, when there were codes of conduct in Hollywood. There literally was codes of conduct on what you could do, couldn't do, and they, they'd thrown all that out the window. But during that period of time where there was a rise of media and movies and Hollywood and everything else, in the apostolic world, there was a stand against that, and it became very easy just to say, we're not going to do that. And that progressed through uh, many, many years now, 
that whole conversation is very complex because you got, we're talking about phones here. We're not talking about like the television screen in front of you. But one of the arguments that we, we would say in justification for that particular stance is, can you believe that people spend four to six hours a day watching television? And what a waste of time that is, and that was our argument. But this article here is saying that teenagers are spending how many hours a day? Nine hours a day. And this has become, according to the psychologists in this book, a very, very real problem. This is not an apostolic that's writing this article. This is just somebody that's looking at psychological changes among demographics. It's a fundamental change in how teens spend their leisure time, she said. And earlier this year, Surgeon General Murphy warned that teen depression and suicide are on the rise in the social media age. And while both boys and girls are struggling, it is a trend that seems to be hitting girls harder. Obviously, there's a lot of comparison, so people pattern their lives over what they're seeing. This psychologist said this could be because platforms like Instagram exacerbate girls' tendency to compare themselves and vie for social success now in the form of followers and likes. Let me just say something right there. So people are building their whole identity based on how many people follow them and how many likes they get. Listen to me, your identity is not tied to social media, Instagram, or how many likes or followers you have. That is just absolutely ridiculous. And somebody needs to, somebody needs to say that. You are valuable and God values you and your identity is based on his anointing working through you and you doing something in the kingdom of God, not based on whether or not somebody likes your picture or doesn't like your picture. You don't build your existence on that kind of stuff where you're comparing yourself. You build your, yourself on something that is deeper than that. That is superficial. That is so superficial. And that is very, very fleeting. But it's, it's a reality. The pandemic exacerbated these frightening mental health trends. It uprooted many lives and it inflamed Existing issues with Gen Z, that would be those 1997 to 2012. And then some of these other groups. The idea that the adolescent mental health crisis is due to the pandemic only is false. But you certainly can't rule out some acceleration on the trend. So the pandemic only accelerated some of the things that were already at play. And what was at play was the advent of social media. Meanwhile, Gen Z is coming of age in an era of political polarization. Yeah, cancel culture, yes, and global social unrest, sapping them of hope for the future and faith in their country. Four in 10 say America's founding fathers are better described as villains than as heroes. Beaten down by the economic climate, older Gen Zers are setting records for moving back in with their parents. And because of all of that, they have become the most pessimistic generation. They're the most pessimistic. They view everything very critically. Although their generation might have done, might not have done worse than say boomers. I mean, this kind of, you're looking at different groups here. Boomers, what did boomers go through? Well, boomers were getting drafted into Vietnam. <laughs> what are Gen Z's going through? Polarization and social media and likes and, and dislikes and not enough followers. And so when you kind of compare some realities, it's, it's, it's a little head scratching. But this is where we are in our culture. Depression is, isn't just about emotions. It's about cognition. It's about thinking. It's about how you see the world. A generation that is more depressed is more likely to be pessimistic. 
and they're going to view ambiguous things as negative. This mindset can have dire consequences. Nearly a third of teen girls have seriously considered suicide. Nearly a third, that's 33.33333%. And youth self-harm hospitalizations have soared 163% in the last 10 years. What is self-harm? That is cutting yourself because you want to feel something because you feel so numb and hopeless in the world that you live in. You cut yourself to feel like you are alive. Now, that may seem pretty crazy to you, but this is the kind of culture that we live in. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death in young Americans. These are, these are troubling, troubling statistics and more of a reason why the church has got to be the center of everything that we do and not just the center of everything that we do. There's got to be a power and anointing that is greater than that mind-numbing stuff that I just related to you. Young people need to know, wait a minute, I feel the Holy Ghost. I feel the anointing of God and so I'm not going out on a whim and a limb of other things and my identity is not based on all of that stuff but I've got something that is deeper. The scripture says, deep calls unto deep. We don't need to be a superficial people and a superficial church with a superficial move of the anointing, but we need the power of God in the house of God where the anointing shakes everything in our lives and moves us closer to him. Hallelujah. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord together. We're living in troubling times, but thank God there is one that's the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Praise God. Troubling, troubling times, especially if your parents, and if your parents with teens, your parents that are not teens yet, you need to be praying because that day's coming. That day is coming. This psychologist that wrote this book said parents should stave off smartphones and social media for as long as possible. And she believes, now again, this is Dr. Jean Twinge, PhD. She's not apostolic, she's just a psychologist. She believes that more radical solutions are needed, like raising the minimal, minimum social media age to 16. That's, 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 now that's coming at you from a psychologist's perspective. When should I give my child a smartphone? According to her, 16. And uh, she said, we're behind the curve in doing anything about this. This is not a problem of individual families or individual teens. This is a group level problem. And so for her, 16 is, is an age where it should start and socialization should be encouraged as much as possible until then, and, and, and 16 is the threshold level. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I don't know what your policy is. I'm just throwing that out there for, from somebody that is an expert that's not apostolic but sees the damaging trends and feels like it's very, very important. He said, well, I, you know, I, my, my – uh, age was, is lower than that. Well, if you've dropped the age down with smartphones and they have them, uh, say, it, say at 12, 12, they're moving into youth and so they're a little more developed. Uh, if lower than that, uh, you need to be very, very careful. This is a really risky, risky endeavor here according to this article that I'm reading to you. And so if you want the best mental health, spiritual health, identity, and everything for your kids, this really needs to be something that you consider. If it's not an age, then it needs to be a time, a screen time. I read this today. I was very, very fascinated by it. Today, Instagram, who is owned by Meta, which is uh, the old Facebook, is coming out with a program. They, they themselves. Now, some of the original folks that created Facebook and Instagram and, and what have you, 
some of the people that were the creators jumped off the ship when they, and they started talking about how they created these feedback dopamine loops, likes and things like this, that they, they sat down and designed this and tested this among people to see that there's a dopamine sp spike when, when somebody likes your picture or somebody follows you. And so they created these feedback loops. Now it's not just that, but now they track all of your data and they know how to push stuff to you. So depending on what you're, and sometimes it gets scary because if you're standing here talking about, I don't know, shoes, and then all of a sudden it starts showing up on your social media and Instagram stuff, that's a little bit, that's a little freaky. And they've got all this stuff to track all of that and, and do all of this. And so, so just recently, just recently, they're coming out with a program that tries to prohibit you from spending too much time at night scrolling, mindlessly scrolling through your social media. Why? Because they recognize that there is a high volume of people in the middle of the night that are doing that. So they're creating a program to notify you that you've been on there for longer than 20 minutes. I don't know exact what the exact ramifications. And they're going to start pushing notifications to try to get you to stop from just scrolling mindlessly. Now, when, when the business itself is trying to stop people from their actual business, you know that that is a very powerful, powerful force. So I'm just saying here tonight in terms of of social media, be very, very careful. Amen. Your struggle and self-discipline is going to come into play with your social media appetite. And, and, and we, we are inconsistent if we're talking about how much time we didn't spend on television and now how much time we do spend on social media. Something is wrong there. We need to go back to the principle. And the principle was David saying, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I'm not going to let anything control my appetite to the point that I don't have control over it. So I'm going to discipline my life in every single area so that nothing can dominate and control me. And I'm not just wasting time and then realize, wait a minute, I've been in cap been captured for two hours over something. And so I've got to get to the place where I can control some of those things. Praise God. So this amazing article. And the three questions, the three things that they, 50%, just about every one of them. So way back in the 90s and 2010s up to that point, uh, only like 20% of all teenagers would identify with these three statements. Now, in 2023, 50% are identifying with every, that's half. If we were to have all the young people in here from 12 to 18 stand up, half of them would be a representation of a larger picture survey of all young people that would identify with these statements. And so I'm going to use these statements, and I'm going to give a biblical answer to these statements. And I'm not, again, I am not just picking on young people. Sometimes young people become the scapegoats. Listen, adults do just as much and are involved in just as much as young people. So this, this article is based on youth, but it's everybody. And so I want to answer some of these questions. And the first one that I want to answer is, what has happened is social media has sucked away the ability for young people to say, I'm going to take initiative and do something. And because of that, there is something that is telling them what to do, how to think, comparing themselves to others instead of 
them taking the initiative and saying, I'm going to activate some things in my life. What is initiative? Initiative is having a conviction that something needs to be done and then taking action to actually put it into practice. And young people are losing that ability and that strength to take initiative. You know what we need in the house of God? We need people that take initiative, that say, you know what? Our world needs an answer. They're hopeless, but we know somebody that can provide hope. Take initiative in worship and praise. Take initiative in coming to the house of God and being faithful. That just doesn't happen. It takes initiative to say, I'm going to be faithful to the things of God and the kingdom of God. Somebody's not going to strip away that ability to make a conscious decision and choice. It's pretty sad. You take away the initiative and you take away what comes with it, which is influence. When somebody says, you know what, I've got a conviction that something needs to be done, and then they put it into action, there is an influence that happens with that. You know why? Because other people recognize, wait a minute, that's pretty cool. I want to be involved in that. And so people join in with that, and there becomes an influence that is a positive influence. What's happening now is the reverse, and it's a negative influence. Listen to me. The world is nothing but full of negativity and an illusion. We need something to be positive. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that preaches positively. Praise God. We don't come in here beating people over the head, telling you that you don't measure up, and, and you should get a life and and don't let the door hit you on the way out that's not who we are what we are is we believe in a hope we believe in positive things of the anointing and power of God that you can make it and you can have an influence and you can touch your world so the question that they identify with is I I don't I can't do anything right why can't they do anything right? Because there's a lot of people in a world that's telling them that they don't measure up, that they're a failure. And so they can't do it right because there's people speaking into their ear. And it may be their parents. It may be their parents that are so caught up in a social media age of depression and pessimism that they're transferring it to their children and their teens, and their teens can't do anything right, and it's a hopeless situation, and they're miserable, so why not make somebody else miserable? That's transference. Be very, very careful with that. If you're having a bad day, Keep it to yourself. Don't transfer it to somebody else. Transference is a negative thing. And so it may be that they're transferring some of the negativity on the children because they're so dissatisfied with life themselves so that the children feel like, I can't do anything right. I want, you, I want you to hear me here tonight. I want to be a church and a people. Sometimes, I know, I recognize that people don't always measure up and sometimes they struggle. And, and here's a warning alert, warning alert alert. Nobody's perfect. And, and if you think you are, you're not perfect either. You got troubles and things you need to work on, just like I got things I need to work on. But we're all working together. And the purpose is to see you develop a spiritual maturity and strength in life and see you grow. Church is about spiritual growth. It's not about consumerism. It's not about numbers. It's about spiritually growing. And when people spiritually grow, there's an influence that creates the numbers and everything that goes with it. But you got to get yourself self-right first. So there's a lot of factors why young people would say, I don't do anything right. Ultimately, that, be that becomes a character issue. It's a character issue. Somehow there's a disconnect between my struggles and my failures that has been turned to where it's such a negative thing that I don't feel like I can do anything right. 
If, if you have a failure, you need to get up, brush yourself off, and say, okay, I'm going to learn from that. We can't have you in here tearing up Jack. Whoever Jack is, I feel sorry for him. Uh, but we can't have you in here tearing up stuff if you're not going to change. If you're not going to change and you're just going to cause problems, then at some point we have to say, okay, you, you can't do that here because we're not on the same page. But if you're struggling and you have difficulties and you get up and you say there's got to be a solution, then we're on board to see that you come through that and you learn from that experience and you grow. And it's interesting. It's interesting how sometimes people can be so hard on other people and yet so lackadaisical among their own. Well, <laughs> I can be real judgmental about the person on the end of my pew, but I don't really look at myself. This is why we need to have a good dose of humbleness. God, we recognize we're not all that, and we need your mercy and your grace to help us, to grow us, to develop us. And so it's a character thing. How do, you, how do you build character? You build character by coming through your mistakes and coming out on the other side and saying, you know what, that was a really traumatic experience, and I don't want that to ever happen again, so I'm going to learn from that. Every single one of us has said some things we wish we could take back. We can't take back. There's some of us in here, we wish we could take back some things that we have done, and we can't do that. We can't go back and change that. But we can learn from those things, and we can say, I'm going to be better. I know I made a mistake there. I fell flat on my face, but the enemy's not going to rejoice over me. I'm going to get up and I'm going to arise and God is going to develop me. That's character. That's character. And so young people saying I can't do anything right is because somebody is not helping them understand how to build character and work through and resolve some things and grow. It's amazing. If you look at Paul when he's writing to Timothy and Titus, his whole discussion is all about character. He's talking to two young men who are ministers in the faith. And he spends a lot of time talking to them about proper character. Let me just read some of this to you, and then, I, and then I'll explain why Paul is spending so much time there. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse number 1, he says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, that's money, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest he being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without Lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then he talks about deacons. They must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Let them be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Let their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let them be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their house. For if they have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul, and he does this with Timothy and Titus. That's just a selection. If you read those, those two epistles, you're going to find him talking about a lot of stuff like having sound speech that cannot be condemned. I know you're in the middle, Titus, of Crete, and the Cretans have said they're evil. 
uh, evil beasts and slow bellies. Their appetite controls them, and so that's where you're pastoring. Uh, but you got to have some strength and some character in your life so that uh, you can minister. Because if you're just going to go the direction that they're going to go, there's not going to be a movement toward revival and a church is not going to be built. Why would Paul spend so much time on, on building character? The reason why, I mean, he, he doesn't spend as much time on personality. He doesn't spend much time on temperament. He doesn't spend time on giftings how gifted somebody is. Why, why would he spend so much time there? The reason why is because Paul realizes character has staying power. And so I may not be the most gifted, but if I've got good character, I'm going to last over the long term. And you see that. Somebody that's very, very talented, if their heart's not right and they don't have character, it's shipwrecked and it doesn't last very long. It's a flash in the pan, and we've seen it over and over and over and over because they're elevated quickly because of their talents, their abilities, and people gravitate toward them because, wow, they're so talented. But if they don't have any character, there's going to be a problem. And so Paul says, if I can develop in the life of young ministers that you may not have the best abilities, you may not be the most talented, but if you've got character, you can stand on the island of Crete and you can carve out a work for the kingdom of God over the long term. Can't do anything right building character somewhere there's a disconnect because they don't feel like they're there's a disconnect you wouldn't say that if man i didn't get it right but i came through that and i learned from that and so you wouldn't identify with the 50 percent. you wouldn't identify with that as much because you would recognize that god is working in my life and that's of all the scripture you look in scripture character is important and it has staying power and this is why it's very, very important to Paul. It proves a person. You can't elevate somebody that, that becomes a novice because they haven't been proven. So there's difficulties and struggles. James said, count it all joy when we enter into different kinds of temptation. Brother Brock preached the ode to joy on Sunday morning, which is talking about things that come in our life. And those things are to develop us. Why? They prove something. See, I'm not, <laughs> uh, not going to judge you based on your mistakes. I, I'm not going to do that. Some people will. He made a mistake. I mean, you sit around and listen to some people, and, and that's just another thing. This is just a side note. I, I, don't, I like to sit around with people that are talking about concepts and things and not so much just talking about people because typically when you're just talking about people, it gravitates toward negativity. And you can talk about to some people, and, and they'll play, pull up stuff. You remember in 1973 in the month of December on the 10th day, so-and-so really made a mistake there, didn't they? What? I mean, I, this is why I, I appreciate being a pastor with short-term memory. Because, I, I, you know, I forget. I, I, what? They did what? I don't remember that. I would rather judge you not on the mistake that you made, but on how you dealt with the mistake. Because that's character. That's proving character. And that strikes at that I don't know how to do anything right that is so prevalent in our world today. When you make a mistake mistake and you you grow from that that's 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 what i want to attach significance to you say well i don't know about that Whoa, don't put yourself in the crosshairs <laughs> careful try to get yourself out of the crosshairs <laughs> let's judge people based on the development that they're making in life not on just the mistakes. 
So young people today are saying, I identify with the fact that I don't, I can't do anything right. Praise God, young people, you're going to have mistakes and difficulties, but you got a pastor that's telling you, you can grow from every mistake and you won't identify with that statement because you recognize God is working something in me. He's proving me. He's proving me. Amen. Praise God. The second statement was, I do not enjoy life. 48.9%. I, I can't do anything right, 49.5%. I do not enjoy life, 48.9% of young people. I do not enjoy life. A hopeless situation that's coming out of a heart and an attitude and a mind, we're talking about mental health, where I don't enjoy life. There's nothing in life that I enjoy, which means I don't have any motivation. The initiative has been taken. Somebody is directing me, and therefore I have no influence, and I have no influence, and I'm not doing anything with my life. I have no purpose, and I have no destiny, and so if I've got no purpose and no destiny, and I'm doing this for eight hours, and then I'm comparing myself with everybody and everything, and my life doesn't look like that, and I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm uh, coma. I have the fear of missing out, and this is all I'm doing. I'm not stepping into any motivation and any purpose. And I want to say to you that God has a purpose for your life, that you should be motivated. For his glory, you should say, you know what? I'm motivated, I'm activated, and I'm doing something, and it's valuable, and it gives me purpose, and there is a destiny. I'm not wandering around hopeless, but I recognize that there is something that is driving what I am doing because I'm motivated. If you look in the Old Testament, it's fascinating because in the Old Testament, the motivation on just about every uh, example in Scripture was in the Old Testament, was defending God's honor. We see this in Moses. We see it in Joshua. We see it in David. So Moses, when he brings all the people out, and then they're worshiping and dancing around the golden calf, and they've forgotten God, and they want to go back to Egypt, and they want the flesh pots and all the seasonings and everything else, and, 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 and God is frustrated with them, and so he tells Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy them and create a new people. Moses, Moses, now I'm paraphrasing, but Moses says, wait a minute, God, you can't do that. You, you brought us out of Egypt, and the Egyptians went through. We went through everything and all the plagues, and they saw your power and glory, and we came out here to the Red Sea, and we crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was destroyed, and the whole world has seen this, and now you're going to walk away from that? This is an impossibility because of your name and your honor and your glory. Well, you, you, you can't. So God, God reverses. Same thing happens with Joshua. At Ai, they have a great victory at Jericho, and then because of Achan's sin, they have a great defeat, and God is upset, and, and Joshua, he repeats the same thing that Moses says, and he said, you can't do this. You can't do this, God, because look how far you have brought us. For your name's sake, you can't do this. When David goes out to face Goliath, you know what really um, ticked David off is probably not the right terminology. What made him mad, right? You know what really just made him mad? TikTok. 
is when Goliath stepped out, and what did Goliath start doing? He started threatening, and he started calling the God of Israel a bunch of threatening names. And David said, is there not a cause? Something must be done to this Philistine. And so then when he comes to Goliath, Goliath looks at him and says, you're just but a boy, scrubby little runt. And David says, he's defending, right? Nobody else is. Everybody else is running to the tent. And Saul's not on the battlefield. But David, when he comes to Goliath, he said, you come to me with spear and sword, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He's defending his honor. He's motivated. They're motivated. Why are they motivated? Because I got to do the work of God. And God is big and God is great and God is bold. And he's taken us out of bondage and he's taken out of slavery, us out of slavery. And so therefore, my life is wrapped up in motivation. And my life is, is fulfilled in motivation to protect the goodness of God. And so anybody that wants to come and threaten, I'm going to stand up and testify. You can talk about him all you want, but God's been good to me and I'm motivated. Praise God, I'm motivated. My life is wrapped up in the purpose and destiny of God. It's the reason why I wake up in the morning and say, today is a new day. His mercy is good every morning. I'm going to walk through today, and God's blessing is going to be on my life, and I'm going to see what God's going to do. Praise God. <laughs> I got a motivation. Praise God, I got a motivation. I don't enjoy life. Not if you're motivated to the kingdom of God and the things of God. It's, well, what are we doing? What we're doing is every single ministry from children to young people to, to young marrieds with children to adults to men to women to elders to everything that we do is so that we can build an understanding that our life is wrapped up in the kingdom of God. And that is motivation. Praise God. Motivation. That's why we're here in the house of God tonight. Uh, in the New Testament, it changes because in the Old Testament, that motivation to protect God's honor was a lot of fisticuffs. I look like I could really be tough, huh? I don't want to shadow box. I might throw my back out. So, All right. A lot of the Old Testament, it's a lot of fisticuffs. There's a lot of fighting and bloodshed and what have you that goes on. The New Testament comes around, and it's not, it's not that. It's, it's a different, it's still motivating, but it's in a different way. How? It's Jesus, he, he develops that ethic. God's glory and his honor becomes a very personal thing. becomes a very personal thing, and it becomes internal. Think about that. Why did Jesus have such confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because they were so focused on traditions and rules and all this kind of stuff. And he said to them on multiplications, he said, you're like whited sepulchers. By the way, if you've never been to Israel, you wouldn't understand that, that statement. But if you've been to Israel and you're looking up, you're standing on uh, the Mount of Olives and you're looking down the Garden of Gethsemane in this area, overlooking the Kidron Valley and Jerusalem is right there on the other side. When you're looking down, this would be on the uh, eastern side of Jerusalem. There, is, there are tombs that are all over. 
Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. They're all white. They're all white, and there's a lot of stones. People will go put stones on them, and the, the whole point is, I mean, those are the, that's key areas because if Jesus, if the Messiah comes from the east, then you want to be as close as you can to the Messiah coming. And so their, their expectation is still that, but we know the Messiah has already come, and his name is Jesus. So all these, you have, you have all of these tombs, and they're white. So Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, said, you're like whited sepulchers. You're full of dead men's bones. You look really good on the outside. But on the inside, you're putrid. Right? And he say comments like, the cup needs to be clean on the inside and on the outside. Wash the inside and the outside. So there's always this conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees because Jesus was talking about an internal thing. This living for God thing, you, you can mask, you can, you can put on the facade and what have you on the outside. <clears throat> but you can mask and hide what's on the inside. And so Jesus, the motivation, the motivation with the disciples and with his teaching, and then with the infilling of the Holy Ghost that was going to come, was going to be to help us be motivated to make sure that our heart was right. And that is where the real battle, it's not a physical thing anymore, it is a spiritual battle. Does that make sense? Does that help anybody here today? There's a big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Jesus' ethic became something that was an internal motivation where you examine your heart. So when you gave alms, you didn't do it on the street corners and you didn't sound a trumpet because that would be hypocritical because you want glory of men, you want to be seen of people. Jesus said, go, go in secret and pray to your father. He sees in secret. When you're praying, you don't stand in the synagogues in the corner of the streets that you may be seen, but enter into your closet and shut your door and your father, which is in secret, he will reward you openly. So it's an internal motivation. Paul looked for a day in which the Lord would come and he would bring to light the hidden things of darkness. And will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So it's an internal thing. My, my walk with God, I've got to spend time in prayer, making sure that my heart is right, my motivation is right, my spirit is right. And when I do that, I mean, that's, that's discipleship. That's growing spiritually. So I wouldn't identify with, I wouldn't identify with the statement that 50% of young people say I do not enjoy life because I recognize that in this life, I'm working on myself, and I want God to direct me and guide me, so I'm working on it. Amen. Praise God. All we need tonight is just a, a piano or somebody to come up here, Brother McAllister, if you would help us. I've gone a little long here, but this is really, 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 really good stuff, and it's right where we are today. This is kind of the culture that we live in. And so our young people need to hear this, but we need to hear this as well. The last statement is my life is not useful. Every, every person in the scripture. It's amazing how these questions parallel these spiritual principles. Like I can't do anything right is character. Uh, I don't enjoy life as, as having a motivation it's connected to something greater than myself. 
And so if I don't feel that, I'm just kind of wandering around. It feels hopeless. And then my life is not useful. Every, everybody that God used in the scripture from the beginning to the end, they had a message. See, it all flows. It all parallels these three statements. And this is what amazing. This is what's amazing. That's why I was so excited to teach this because it all, it all fits. Everybody had a message. They're working on character. They've got a motivation to the things of God. And if you're working on character and you've got a motivation for the things of God, you're going to have something to say. All had something to say. Abraham. What are you doing, Abraham? I'm following the promise of God. Where are you going? I don't know, but I'm following the promise of God, and I know he's going to be faithful. So he tells the people in the Ur, the Chaldees, that look at him like he's lost his mind. He tells them, I'm searching for a city whose maker and founder and builder is God. I don't know where I'm going, but I want to tell you this. This place where we're in right now, this is not it. There is something greater. He had a message. He had something to say. Man, he had something to say. Uh, you can just keep going. I mean, it gets it's fun to, to go. Esther, Esther, God's never mentioned in the book of Esther, but it's obviously God's purposes. She finds herself in the king's palace, and that dude by the name of Haman has created this elaborate plot, plot to destroy all the children of Israel. And Mordecai comes to her and he says, You have you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. You've got something to say, Esther, and if you don't say it, we're all dying. So you got to go into the throne room, and you got to say something. And she went into the throne room with a message. Free Hebrew children. Nebuchadnezzar puts up this big, huge statue, and he asks everybody to bow when the music is played, and everybody bows except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're not bowing, and the king asks them why, and they say, we're not careful how we answer you. We serve the one true living God. We're not bowing down to this image. You can throw us in a fiery furnace. That's okay, and if we die, we die, but we will not bow because we serve the one true living God. They had a message. Praise God. <laughs> My life is not useful. It's useful when you've got something to say and you're motivated and God's working through your experience in life. You got something to say. Daniel, you can put me in the lines. Daniel, you can bring all the lines in here and you can try to stop me from praying, but I got a message for you. I'm not going to stop praying because I'm motivated for God's glory in his kingdom. God. Did Jesus have a message? Absolutely had a message. What was his message? I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm willing to go to Calvary for it, suffer the persecution. I'll shed my blood because I want salvation to come to everybody. He had a message. He had a message. Peter on the day of Pentecost, he's got a message. They spill out of an upper room. 
and people looking around and they're talking in tongues and they think like drunk and he stands up and he says these are not drunk as you suppose seeing this is but the tenth hour of the day but this is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel in other words this is the Holy Ghost that has come down and you need to repent and be baptized in Jesus name and be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost they had a message they had a message that reverberated around the world and it's the same message that we're still teaching and we're still preaching you gotta have a message you gotta say something Woo! Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, young people. Come on, adults. Hallelujah. Don't say your life is not useful. It's useful in the kingdom of God. Put your hand to the plow and do the work of God. <laughs> you know what's interesting about this? I'm sorry I'm going long, but it's okay. You know what's interesting about this? Sometimes people want to go to the world because there's all kinds of fun stuff out there. 50% of all the young people that are in the world are saying, I don't do anything right, my life is not useful, and I don't enjoy life. Why would you want to go from a church where there's anointing and power and people are supportive and they're plugging you into purpose and destiny to go to a place that is a God-forsaken, barren desert with no meaning in life, no future? Woo! I want to go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I want to be plugged in to everything. God, use me in whatever capacity and in whatever way you can because I want to be involved in the kingdom of God. We need to gather around here tonight and we need to pray for our children. Quick, quick, quick. Don't sit there. You should be rushing madly to the front because this is where we live and this is the kind of society we're in. You say, well, he's being ridiculous. No, you should be living for God with your hair on fire if you've got children and you've got young people. Adeline needs Brian up here worshiping. Her head's bobbing and she's jumping up and down. He can't do both hands. I'm still, I'm still not sure how he can jump in the air and do both hands at the same time. But he's up here with his, his baby. You know what he's doing? He's teaching her. What is he teaching her? Motivated for God's glory. We've got a message. We've got something. We've got purpose. We've got destiny. You say, well, I don't know what you're getting so testy about. I'll tell you what I'm testy about. And they're marching down the streets for the month of pride in the month of June. And they're saying, we're queer, we're gay, we're coming for your children. Uh, you know, I want to be kind, but when you start saying some of that kind of stuff, it feels like, wait a minute, we, 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 we're going to have a collision here because the innocence of children should not be what we're fighting over. Praise God. <laughs> Amen. 
You know what I'm thankful for? I'll tell you what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for godly parents that see the value of being in church and plugging them into every ministry that they can possibly plug into. I'm thankful for people that have activated and have said, we're going to take some initiative and we've got a conviction that we need to do the work of God. And I'm thankful for the influence that that creates. Because what we need is a move of God that is greater than anything externally. The temptations, the struggle, the course of the world, the narrative of the world, and all of that. God, I want your anointing and your ability and your touch. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. We need to lift our hands and let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would touch every ministry of the church, our children, our young people, adults, in a hopeless world, in a culture that feels like their life is not worth anything and they're not useful. I pray that you would help us as a church to keep our foot on the pedal moving forward into your goodness and your greatness. Hallelujah. We need junior camps where young people get the Holy Ghost. We need senior camps where young people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. We need Sunday school. We need to be involved in, in everything that we can get ourselves involved in because we recognize the course of this world. It's not a good direction. It's a pessimistic direction. It's a negative direction. It's a hopeless direction. But thank God there is hope in the house of God. There is redemption in the house of God. There is salvation in the house of God. Hallelujah. We rally around that. We celebrate. We follow that. We proclaim. Praise God. Praise God. You know, uh, it's kind of interesting. I didn't even think about that until I just said that. What's our motto here? We follow, we proclaim, and we celebrate. Wow, we're following, which is the character part. We're following Jesus to be disciples. And then we are proclaiming. That's the message part. And then we are celebrating. That's the motivation. We're celebrating his glory and his goodness and all the great things that he has done. It's all wrapped up there. That's, 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 that's what we're doing. We, We've got purpose. We've got destiny. We want to have an influence in this community. Praise God. And when you hear testimonies like Sunday night, you recognize somebody took initiative and there was influence. And because of that, the Holy Ghost is drawing and calling. Oh, let's clap our hands and thank the Lord together. God, I thank you. This is why we have a school. This is why we have a daycare. This is why we have a youth ministry. This is why we have children's ministry. Praise God. Praise God. I thank you and praise you and worship Amen, amen, amen. You know you're getting old when you say things like, man, this generation was a different generation than when I was around. And you're fighting a different battle than when we had to fight, right? You know you're getting old, right? But it's true. Man, it is so very, very true. Praise God. What do you say? Let's continue to have revival. Amen. What do you say? Let's be disciples. Let's be motivated to do the work of God. And let's not be embarrassed or intimidated to give a message to somebody that you can make it. God loves you. He's reaching for you. You may feel like giving up and giving in, but God's on your side. He's faithful. Just watch what God's going to do in your life. That's a message. <laughs> that is a message.
Praise God, praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing and your goodness. I love you and thank you, and I pray that you would continue to direct us and guide us. Take us into greater things. Take us into deeper waters. Amen. Help us to be the city on a hill where there is hope and strength, and instead of negativity and pessimism, there is positive understanding of salvation and redemption and what you and only you can do. You bring healing and strength and I pray that you would touch people with your virtue and with your ability in Jesus name. We pray amen, amen. Praise God. God bless you. There's people right near you so turn around to somebody and tell